Luke chapter 9. Um, I really wanted to do a little bit more of a lengthy recap this morning because since we're at the end of chapter 9, but I'm, I'm not going to do that for the sake of, for the sake of our, our, our time. Um, the big thing that we need to remember, in particular last week, is we were talking about discipleship, excuse me, and, and, and exclusively discipleship in the means of, of when we follow Christ, we, we, we come to Him with no pride. We are not the greatest, but, but He is the, is the greatest. The, in chapter 9, we have seen this call of Jesus to follow Him. Um, in particular, after he laid out before his disciples what, it, um, what his mission is and why he came to be rejected, to suffer, to, to die, um, Jesus then goes immediately and calls his disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. Which means that to be a disciple... To be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it looks like, what the, the evidences of it are, the marks of discipleship is, is that it's going to look hardly any different than Jesus' mission, than what Jesus does. We are denying ourselves, taking our cross, and follow Him. Even if that road of ours leads to the same kind of road that He has, and that was a road to die, a road to road to die. And we saw the disciples flailing in their understanding, in their lack of understanding. They were in fear. And so they failed. We saw this lack of faith, unbelief. We saw them in their pride um, last week. And what we saw, the good news of this, is that despite our failures, even our willful disobedience and pride, the good news is that for Christians, our right relationship with God is not based upon us, but it's based upon the merit of Christ and His relationship with the Father. And so that's the good news that we as disciples, like them, are falling and faltering and flailing and fumbling, that our right standing, our right righteousness is not dependent upon us, but it solely is found in Christ. And so on such a long road of discipleship and a difficult road of discipleship that we've been called to, we cling to the cross, we carry our cross. What a reminder of the cross by the crosses we carry. And we remember the gospel because it kills our apathy in discipleship. And that's mainly what we're really going to talk about tonight today. So as we finish chapter 9, we're going to, we're going to draw back to discipleship and what it means to follow Christ. You can even look at the, the, um, the, substatement or the subtitle of your passage. We see our, the Samaritan village rejects Jesus. And then next, the cost of following Jesus. If you're rolling in the ESV, you can see that. Um, but this morning, if I can just kind of boil it down to like one concise thesis statement, I would say it like this. The call to discipleship is a call to follow that costs us everything to follow. It costs us everything to follow, yet in Christ we see that it is worth everything. That it's worth everything. And the reason why it's worth everything is because we get we get him. We get, we get him. Let's look at Luke chapter 9. 
Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. I'll, I'll read that statement again for you all if you want to hear that again. The call to discipleship is a call to follow that costs us everything to follow him. Yet it is worth everything we lose. It's worth everything we lose because we get him. Let's look back to chapter 9, verse 51. Let's read the word of God together. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, here's that verse I've been telling you all about, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he set, sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to go make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on, their, they went on to another village. Verse 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds have the air and the nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Amen. That is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts this morning to hear, to see his holy inspired and inerrant word for his glory for our joy. I've entitled this sermon, Life on the Road. You can look at um, verse 57 and see that they were going along the road. Verse 51, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, which means he's going to be going down a road to get to Jerusalem. Now, I know I've been saying this over and over as we've been walking through chapter 9, that chapter 9 in the Gospel of Luke is a major turning point in this Gospel. And it's because we see there in verse 51, that turning point, where Jesus no longer wants to hang out in Galilee and be in Capernaum on the north side of the Lake of Galilee, but he wants to turn south now to, to Jerusalem. And this just, just isn't some uh, GPS error that they've gone the wrong way. Jesus is now setting his face toward Jerusalem for a particular reason. And we've been talking about that reason, and that is to go to the cross. Now before chapter 9, Jesus has been fulfilling over and over again what he said from Luke chapter 4 in his earthly ministry that he would fulfill the prophecy of the Messiah from Isaiah 61. 
to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover sight to the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And literally, as we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke up to this point, this is exactly what Jesus has been doing. And he's going to continue to do so. But, now that they are at the top of the lake, if you look at your maps and your Bibles, you can see this. They're at the top of the lake. They're going to start making their way south. At this point in Jesus' ministry, as he turns toward Jerusalem, we're going to see less miracles. We're going to see less extended times of teaching. And we're going to see crowds that become smaller and smaller and smaller all the way to the point where Jesus is the only one left. I told you a while ago, he's the faithful remnant. The only one. He's the only one. Now, it's going to take us ten chapters before we get to Jerusalem. So, Luke 19, when Jesus goes into the, um, when he goes into, uh, the triumphal entry. You guys remember that? Luke chapter 19. Ten more chapters and, and, until we get there. But what we see in verse 51 is Jesus knows the goal in mind. He knows why he is here, and it's time to go south. He is resolute. He is determined to go to the cross, and that's what that means for his face to be set before him, before him to go to Jerusalem. He is resolute to go. So he hits the road. He gets on the road. A road that leads to the cross. And we see hints of this road, journey, that Jesus is on throughout the Gospel of Luke. Now, it's not the main point, it's not the main theme, but it's throughout. He shows us, he lets us know, Jesus is not going home. Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus is not going to comfort. He's not going to a place of safety. Jesus is going to the cross. His destination is in his mind. So we must understand, I think one of the big points we understand here in Jesus' life on the road is we have to understand that, that all that is work behind everything here is that Jesus has been sent by his Father to accomplish the mission that God has given to him, and that is to die on the cross and to rise again from the dead for the salvation of his people. If you look back to verse 22, you see Jesus say that himself when he said that these things must take place. This is God's will. This is the will of God from eternity's past for me to go to Jerusalem. God's predetermined plan. That's our, our favorite word, right? Our, his predetermined plan. But the disciples, as we saw last week, and as we'll see again this week, they just didn't understand this. Let's give them grace, right? They didn't understand it, though. They didn't understand Jesus' mission. They were completely misunderstanding it. And we saw that last week, and they wanted to be the greatest. They wanted only the, the work of God to be done among them and not other people. They didn't understand the purpose of the incarnate Christ. And we've seen that in their pride, their overconfidence, confidence in themselves, their unbelief, misunderstanding, and their fear. But Jesus takes them on the road. I've always been intrigued with traveling and seeing the country from the open road. There's just something neat about that. Um, so the natural thing when I was a, a kid, um, we, we would drive. We never flew anywhere. Um, we, we just drove billions of hours. 
riding in the back of a tr pickup truck. Um, but I loved the road, and, I, and as I was doing that, I became enamored with 18-wheelers, big trucks. And, and I just thought to myself as a kid, you know, man, being a trucker must be awesome. I mean, you get to, you get to see the country, all the cool things, and they pay you for it. And, uh, and as a kid, I, I mean, and you got to drive that awesome truck, right? I always wanted the ones with the flat nose, because if I hit anything, I just wanted to be like right there, right? You know, they don't make those anymore, probably for a good reason. But I, I, that's what I wanted to be. I was so enamored, and of course that wasn't the path that I went down to be a, a truck driver. I don't even look like a truck driver, so I couldn't be a truck driver. Um, but I, could, I was just totally enamored uh, by it. But as I began to get older, and I began to understand what it means, to, you know, the life on the road, wasn't as, wasn't as cracked up as I kind of worked it up in my mind to be. In fact, um, years ago now, a few years ago now, I had a conversation with a, a retired uh, truck driver, for, and he was a truck driver for like 40 years. He, he drove trucks for like 40 years, and, and I just kind of was like, man, that must have been awesome. You got to see the country. He's like, yeah, I drove coast to coast. I mean, you got to see the Grand Canyon. No, he said, I drove next to it. I never could take my truck into the Grand Canyon or anything. Right? And, and, and he, I, I still remember his face, him looking at me going, this kid is kind of an idiot. Like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what driving a truck really is about. And his face was like, man, you have no clue. And I remember he said to me, he said, yeah, it was a good job. And I made, I made a good living. And for some people, it's a, it's, a, it's a good living. And it was a good job. He said, but I didn't get to see my kids grow up. I was out of town six out of seven days of the week. He said, I lost my marriage. And then I was like, yeah, I put in my place, you know. Not as, life on the road was, not, was no longer as glamorous as I thought it was. And I think that this is what Jesus is doing for his disciples. As they set out on the road to Jerusalem, I see Jesus is, in a sense, is educating his disciples, like that 40-year-old trucker was educating me that life on the road is tough, that following Jesus is going to be tough. And the road, of course, was literally for them. They were a life on the road. But the road for us is a, meta, a metaphor that illustrates the path that we are on as Christians and following the road that Jesus has walked before us. One of the most famous of uh, stories that you can read uh, about following Jesus on the road is the allegory, uh, A Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. I encourage you to read that. I think you can get it for free on the internet. It's, it's been out for hundreds of years now, probably. Um, wonderful, wonderful allegory of, of the Christian life and following uh, Jesus. And so as we encounter this text this morning, we hear the things that what Jesus is telling us as we just read. I, I want you to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And then in the end, my hope is that you will see that, it is wor that he is worthy. And it's worth every sacrifice that you may be required to make to follow him because he is infinitely worthy. So my first point is the heart of mercy. You see them, my points are easy. They're, they're the two sections that your editors have already uh, separated for us, a heart of mercy. And this heart of mercy that Jesus teaches his disciples about comes out of rejection. It comes out of rejection. When Jesus and his followers are, are traveling to Jerusalem, 
The most direct route to Jerusalem from their point was to travel through the region of Samaria. Right now, we, we have heard of Samaria because we know about the, the, the Good Samaritan. and You might have heard of some of these things, but the, 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 the direct route, A to B, was through Samaria. So, so Jesus, being that the large group that they were, in fact, you can look at chapter 10, says that he will send out 70 disciples. So we know at least there's 71 of them, at least. And Jesus sends messengers on, uh, on ahead in Samaria to a particular village. We don't know which one. And he's telling them, hey, we're coming through. Can we come through? Can you help us? Give us some food. Will you give us some shelter? Things like that. He's asking for provisions. That's what it seems like that's what he's doing. He's kind of preparing them when this large herd of people comes into their, into their uh, city. And it was customary that travelers would receive such hospitality right? It's just the way it is. It's almost kind of like we will help you because we know maybe one day you might help us or you might help someone else. That's just the way it was. People would be hospitable toward one another. But they were rejected. They were rejected. The village didn't want them to come through. You are not welcome here. Now, we know the reason wasn't because they couldn't accommodate a large group. The reason why they were rejected was because it says very specifically because Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, why would Samaritans care that Jesus is going to Jerusalem? Well, let me tell you. There was a, as we know from the uh, good, parable of the Good Samaritan, which we will see in a couple weeks, um, that there was a mutual racial and nationalistic hatred between Jews and Samaritans that went back for centuries. In fact, it started all the way back after King Solomon. So if you kept reading from where Pastor Bill read this morning, I think it's to chapter 9, read from chapter 7. If you get to chapter 9, Solomon has died, and Solomon's son takes over, Rehoboam, And when Rehoboam takes over, he treats the people who had been serving the king with all of his building projects of the of the city and the temple and his home. That he he, Rehoboam decides, I'm going to treat you people the worse than the way my father treated you. And because of that, they said, Oh yeah, well we're out. And so the northern the northern part of Israel splits off. That is called the, the, the northern kingdom under uh, King Jeroboam. Now, if you read, I think it's in, even in chapter 10, 2 Chronicles chapter 10, um, Jeroboam is a moron. He is a moron. In fact, he instantly, he kicks out all the priests, all the Levite priests, because they want nothing to do with Jerusalem anymore. And he creates his own goat gods for his people starts Israel on a very bad track. And at, uh, after 721 B.C., when the northern kingdom is conquered the, uh, the, by the Assyrians, those people, when they were taken into exile, they began to um, intermarry between the peoples. And at that time, that was a no, no to do. And so the Jews of the south, they looked at their used-to-be brothers of the north, and they would call them and treat them as half-breeds, as a half-breed people. And as 
in the northern kingdom, they begin to set up their own places of worship. They begin to do their own things. And it began to continue throughout even the first century when, when uh, uh, Jesus here is around. The, the, they set up their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim instead of the Jews, what they had in Jerusalem. They had their own version of the Pentateuch that they made themselves. They had their own liturgy and their own teachings that, that they would adhere to. And it was all in spite of the, uh, the, the southern kingdom and the Jews. And so the Jews, they would publicly denounce and curse the Samaritans. They were a, they were a nasty word to, to them. They would, they would pray in their synagogues. There was prayers in their synagogues that they would make that Samaritans would not get eternal life. And the Samaritans, not to draw this out, but the Samaritans, they would, they would sneak into the synagogues and they would try to defile their synagogues. At one particular point, at one of the synagogues, they, they brought in human bones and they spread them all around the synagogue. Talk about Hatfields and McCoys, right? A feud that lasted hundreds of years. Um, so when Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, what was the perspective of the Samaritans? Their perspective is, we hate Jerusalem. We hate everything that there is to do with Jerusalem. So if he's going to Jerusalem, we want nothing to do with you. And they did not receive them Man, how, how pointed is that, that, that little statement right there, particularly when we saw earlier last week when they were discussing who was the greatest, and Jesus said, whoever receives me receives the Father. Now, we know the situation in the Samaritans. They were, they were wrong in opposing the Lord, rejecting the Lord. But the attitude that most needed to be corrected, and we see this morning, is not the Samaritans, but, but the disciples. Their attitude needed to be uh, corrected because James and John, right, are the, the sons of thunder, these two disciples, when they, when they heard what has happened, they, they go to Jesus and they want to go all Old Testament prophet on them. Like, it's like all of a sudden now we got the faith and we're going to call down fire from heaven to destroy those evil, wicked people who, who rejects Jesus. Now, they have a precedent here. In 2 Kings chapter 1, uh, and I advise you to go read this. This is an incredible story, right? 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah's about to die. He's an old prophet at the time, and, and there's this king, King Ahaz, northern kingdom king, right? King Ahaz, wicked dude, another wicked dude. He sends soldiers to come capture Elijah because Elijah has a bad prophecy that he has for the king. Basically, you're going to die, sucker. What you've got now is going to kill you. Right? And so the king's mad. He's like, I'm going to go get Elijah, and I'm going to kill him. So he sends 50 soldiers to his house to go get Elijah. And Elijah just kind of like smiles. I'm just picturing, this is my, my interpretation. He kind of smiles. He says, do you presume to send 50 people to capture the, the prophet of the Lord? And he calls, and he says, if I'm not a prophet, then may this not happen. But because I am, watch this. May fire come from heaven and consume them, and boom, kills everyone, and fire burns these 50 dudes up. The king doesn't get the message. He sends 50 more people. Exact same thing happens again. The king's still mad. He sends 50 more people. Is this guy a moron or what? Right? He sends 50 more. And the captain of the guard this time actually says, Elijah, we know what's going to happen. Will you just please come? And Elijah's like, okay. And he goes. 
And he goes, and he, he prophesies to the king, you're going to die. And guess what? He dies. And the very next chapter, chapter 2, is when Elijah is caught up in the air in the chariot. Um, great. What a great story, right? And, and that's what they're coming from, right? This is, their, this is what they are thinking, this, this, this idea of if you're going to reject Jesus, then this is the way we are going. We're going to come down on you like an OT prophet. We're going to come down on you with, with fire. So although they were thinking kind of biblically in one sense, their human hermeneutic, their application, and the, their assumption of what Jesus wanted was all off was all wrong. You see, Ahaz was wicked. And Ahaz, in rejecting the prophet of God, was rejecting God himself. In fact, he clearly rejected God way before that. that was a, he was an idolatrous king. But the Samaritans, they weren't rejecting Jesus. They were rejecting the Jews. They were rejecting the Jews. They didn't like the Jews. Of course, Jesus was Jewish. But they were rejecting the idea of, of the Jews. And the disciples severely misunderstood the nature of Jesus' mission. He had come to save those that rejected him. Praise God. The only one who rightfully could have came and caught fire down earth to consume us all. Bore it himself. That's the irony of this, this passage is that Jesus would face the judgment of God, the wrath of God. On our behalf, for, for those that deserve the judgment of God, including those Samaritans, including the Jews, including all Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, what we need to learn here is we need to learn here of tempering justice with mercy. And see, what the disciples could not see, and I think Jesus knew, was that in, in the book of Acts, when Dr. Luke writes about the, the beginning of the church, the foundation of church, that it was the Samaritans that were the first one to hear and receive the gospel and believe it. Oh, the mercy of Jesus. And ours in following Jesus is to be one of mercy, preaching the gospel to even those who will, will reject and we trust the sovereign hand of God. I heard on the radio uh, this week a caller called a, a large national radio program. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. Um, and, and this woman who was clearly frustrated in the way she was speaking, and, and her frustration was in the way that our president was being treated by certain people with certain investigations and, and the way media was treating, uh, treating him. And, and she, was, she was very frustrated about the whole thing. Regardless of your, your politics and how you feel on this, this is what she said, though, afterwards that really got my attention in her conversation with the host. She said this, and I, and I quote, she said, I am a Christian, but... Now, I've got to stop right there for a second. If, if anyone ever says that to you, I am a Christian, but... There should be a red flag that goes up and says, Mmm... When you say but, you are interjecting something of yourself that's going to contradict what you just said, which is a strong evidence that maybe you're not. But, this is what she said, and I'm not judging her in this way, but understand. She said, I am a Christian, and I wish that man, the investigator, would go to hell 
for what he is doing to our president. Now, I know she was frustrated. In some ways, I could understand that frustration, too. But what comes out of the mouth comes the heart. Brothers and sisters, our condemning people to hell is not a Christian spirit. And I know it sounds like I'm correcting you for what she said. I'm not. I'm just using the example that there's a temptation for us to do that. To condemn people. To not give mercy. When, when we are being given so much mercy and grace. If, she, if, if, if people reject Jesus, if people reject us, especially in the name of Christ, we don't call judgment down upon them. As Christians, we know that judgment will come. Oh, brothers and sisters, judgment is coming. It's coming. And billions of people will spend eternity in hell because of their sin and rejection of Christ in one way or another. But ours is to give mercy now. Why it is still day? Why we are still on the road to announce the good news in mercy? Because we are proclaiming a way to escape that judgment. To escape that fire that will rain down. And that is through repentance and faith in Christ. And if they do not hear, and if they reject the gospel, and if they reject you, and all brothers and sisters, let us have mercy, as Jesus did, and move on. That's mercy. Mercy is moving on. That's being Christ-like. That's being Christian. Oh, church, there is only room for us to give mercy because we know judgment is coming. So on this road where we will face rejection, let us give mercy. My second point comes from verse 57 through 62. 57 through 62. We see how in, in our passages where mercy, we just saw there, Jesus gives mercy to the Samaritans. We see it paired now with, with gospel commitment. With commitment. And so these two lessons of mercy and commitment are, are put together for us because we know this is what kept Jesus on the long road to the cross. It's what kept Jesus on the long road of the cross. And so he is telling uh, us and he's telling his followers in our commitment this morning that we are to deny ourselves take up our cross, lose our lives for His sake, and have a heart of commitment. Here's why. Look back to verse 57. In our passage this morning, in this passage right here, there are three different people that are presented to us. And we don't know who these people are. Matthew's account actually says the first guy was a scribe. And he doesn't include the third guy. But we know all three of, of these guys. We, they're different people. We don't know who they are. But I think that they represent quite a bit. On those who say they're going to follow Jesus, and maybe they might say it in their own words like these guys did, or maybe in their life and the way that they live and the way that they treat Jesus is the yeah butters. Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but. I'm a Christian, but. And so we have three people here presented to us. Now, when I, when I knew this passage was, was coming, 
and this is just me, but uh, out of all the things that Jesus says in the Gospels, I think that this is probably some of the hardest things that Jesus ever says. I may be wrong. Some of y'all can correct me on that if you want. That's fine. But I think these are some of the hardest things because they, they sound insensitive. They sound very uncompassionate. And in and, and one way, even borderline law-breaking. And borderline law-breaking just a little bit. So, but in one way or another, each one of these guys said they would follow Jesus but they had their conditions. They had their, their stipulations. They had things that they had to do first. There was a priority that they had to do first. They all had different reasons, and when you read each one of those reasons, as we already have, they're pretty good reasons. And for any of us, we would, we would kind of give people an out. We would give people an out, like, yeah, yeah, man, you need to say bye to your family. That's cool. I, I, I get that. But in these three examples, and the thing that Jesus' response shows us the cost of the commitment of following Jesus. And you know, when you boil it all down, when you boil everything down, we are only committed. Think of the things that you are committed to. Your husband, your wife, your children, your jobs. Some of you don't want to be committed to that, but you have to. Bills. We are only committed to things that are important to us. We are only committed to things that... <laughs> I just got an awesome look over there. Uh, we are only committed to the things that are important to us. And this is what Jesus is saying. Are you really committed to what's important to you? Meaning me? Is Jesus, at the, the risk of sounding cliche and a very cliche or really... Uh, culturally cliche uh, uh, Christian area that we live in, the risk of, uh, of doing that, uh, the question is, is Jesus more important to you than anything else in the world? That's the, other, the second thing, the heart of commitment. So the first guy in verse 57, he says, I'm, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, Jesus. I mean, he's, he, he, he kind of lays out no stipulation, doesn't he? He says, I'm going I'm to follow you wherever you go. But in Jesus' response is where we see the problem, is where we see where this guy has that stipulation or that condition that's in his heart. Jesus says this. He said, foxes have holes. Okay, they do. Birds of the air have nests. Yeah, they do. Awesome. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So here's what Jesus is telling the guy. Here's what he's telling us. He said, he said, dude, have you looked at my life? The foxes and the birds have it better than me. I don't have a home. I live on the road. I have no home. I have no bed. I have no pillow. I sleep wherever I'm allowed. I eat whatever is given to me. The animals have a better place to sleep than me. And I'm the son of man. So here's what he's saying in this statement. Following Jesus is not one of comfort and wealth. It's not one of pain-free and popularity and even safety. Remember what we heard last week, that Jesus knew the heart of the disciples in their arguments about who is the, the greatest. And I think Jesus heard this guy. I'm going I'm to follow you. And Jesus answers him 
right accordingly to his own spiritual struggles. The thing that this guy was idolizing in his own heart, his misunderstanding on what it means to follow uh, Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't turning this guy away, is he? He's not turning him away. He, he wants him to count the costs of following him. Now, the cost for each one of us, as it was for him, will look different. They're not all the same. We're not all going to be called to give up. There are some that have given up way more than I have ever been asked to give up for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, have you considered the cost in your own life at what it would mean to follow Jesus? Have you tried to continue in serving yourself and fulfill your own comfort and ease even at the expense of following Jesus? I know I need to get to the other guys, but let me address one real practical area that may hit home with some of us. Now, I see this in my, the own tendencies of my own heart, and I see my own uh, desires for comfort and security. And I don't say these things presumably knowing your hearts. Only Jesus knows. But I wonder how much of our desires to stay comfortable and safe and enjoy the wealth that we do have, and by the way, each and every one of us are wealthy in our own degree, to enjoy the wealth that we have been given and privilege that we've all been given. And I wonder if that is what's keeping you from being all, being, uh, all that you can do and being all in for the work of the kingdom of God. I mean, this is literally putting your, mouth, your money where your mouth is. How much of what God has given you in your resources do you put toward the work of the kingdom? I read this statistic this week. By percentages, did you know that Christians today give far less than Christians did 60, 70, and 80 years ago in America? You know what that says? That says Christians during the Great Depression gave more by percentage than we give today. I mean, how, ah. the statistics get even worse for younger generations, which I'm a part of. In most churches, 80% of the church's budget, right? So every church has a budget and what it costs for them to run. 80% of that budget is covered by those who are 55 and up. That's quite an indictment for my generation and younger generations. There's something wrong there. So does the way you use what you have, does it show that you are a disciple or just a good American? Have you truly counted the cost, the cost of following Jesus on the road? If you haven't, hear the words of Jesus. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now the second guy, this time Jesus goes to him and he just flats out says, Hey dude, follow me. I added that part, hey dude. Follow me. But the guy replies, and I, I can imagine this guy kind of stumbling like, oh, uh, uh, Lord, I got to go bury my dad. Pretty reasonable out for this guy, I would say. Right? Like, man, I got to 
I mean, we would give anybody a pass if they couldn't come to church on Sunday morning because they have a funeral in Oshkosh, Wisconsin? Is that in Wisconsin? I just made that up. That is not in my notes. Or, or Chicago or wherever, right? Reno, Nevada. Who goes to Reno for... Yeah, who goes to Reno? Yeah. <laughs> we, would, we would give people an out, but this is what Jesus says. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go proclaim the kingdom of God. Not, not only does this sound insensitive, but like I said earlier, this is borderline breaking the fifth commandment of honoring your father and mother. Now, I read some commentaries, and it just kind of made like this guy was trying to like weasel himself out and using the excuse. He really was just going back for his inheritance and things like that. But I think, there was, I think that this guy was kind of being right. I think literally this guy's like, hey, I have an obligation coming up i got to take care of. Not that he's planning on his dad dying. But the process of funerals and things like that back in the day took almost a year. Now, they didn't have like this year-long funeral party. They first did what we would kind of do traditionally the party of funeral. They would prepare the body. They would have the little ceremony, and they would put them in the tomb, right? Kind of what we know, the garden tomb of Jesus. They put them in the tomb. And in the tomb, they would seal the tomb up. And for a year or so, they would let the body completely decompose. I know, gross. I'm sorry, but this is the way it's done. Right, completely decomposed. And then after that year is up, they would come back as a family. They would gather the remains of their father or their mother or whoever it was, and they would put them in a, in, in a box, also known as an ossuary. Is that right? An ossuary, right? And in that box, then they would put that box in the back of the tomb with all the rest of the family members who have been buried in that family tomb. Right? You get it? Because everybody gets to use the tomb. Then that's how it was done. That's how everybody could fit. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but that still goes down in New Orleans. They still do that in New Orleans. That's how they have fit people in those big, huge, they don't bury people in the under, underground in, in New Orleans. And they still do that. They still gather the people, and then they put them in their own little family little uh, place, just, just what is um, remaining. And this process, this year-long process, was considered honoring your parents. I mean, how honoring it is for a son to fulfill this last honoring of their parents even after they have passed on. So to hear Jesus say this, how shocking that would be for a Jew to hear Jesus tell them to not do that, but to go proclaim the kingdom of God. Now that may not sound, excuse me, shocking to us, but what if Jesus at a funeral or a visitation of a funeral came up and told you, Come follow me and let the dead bury their dead, and so don't go to the funeral tomorrow. Now, Jesus isn't saying that he doesn't care about funerals or family events or weddings and such. That's not what he is saying. But what he is emphasizing to us and to this man who was wanting to follow him was what may be required, we may be required to make a choice between those we love and Jesus. What and who is more important? Sometimes following Jesus does mean dying to yourself and giving yourself to your family. I am feeling the weight of that right now. But here it means not listening to your family when they are asking you to compromise your commitment to follow Christ. Talk about hard. Which is why I think what Jesus is saying here is so hard to understand because this is hard. 
I remember hearing David Platt, who former, I don't know if he's former now, but uh, IMB president, gave a statistic of the top three reasons why young people who are called into missions don't go. The top three. I'm going to start for number three. Number three, sin. They have sin in their life. That's not the point of this passage. Number two, debt financially. They can't go because they owe too many people money. And number one, the number one reason, listen to me, is parental pressure. The number one reason why college students who graduate, who don't go on missions, who, who are called to go into mission, to give their life up for the, for the cause of the gospel, is because parents, good Christian parents, tell them not to go. I just put all that money into your education for you to do what? I had, I didn't, this wasn't even real to me until I met a faithful college young man who was called into missions, and his greatest obstacle was his parents, Christian parents. Our kids are not our own. Our kids are, our children are arrows to be shot out for God's glory. I know this is hard to ask. This is the question that I think Jesus is putting toward us. But who? Who has the priority in your life? Your family or Christ? And the third guy showing us the, the need for a heart of commitment to follow Jesus and to stay focused on Him over everything else. So, so this guy, he... he um, and he tells Jesus like the first, hey, I'm going to follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Another reasonable request, say goodbye. I just want to say goodbye. And this guy also had a biblical precedent that was before him that, hey, I, I, there was a prophet back in the day that let another guy say goodbye to his parents, so why can't I say goodbye to my family? First Kings chapter 19, when Elijah finally comes up to Elisha, two different dudes here, comes to Elisha and, and calls him to follow him and be his disciple and to be the next great prophet in Israel, guess what Elijah is doing at the time when Elisha comes up? He's plowing a field. You'll see where that comes up in a second. He's, he's plowing a field. He calls Elisha to, to follow him, and this is what Elisha does. Elisha says, I'm going to follow you, but let me go kiss my mother and father goodbye. And Elijah says, who am I? Go kiss your mama and daddy and follow me. And Elisha goes and does that. And when Elisha comes back to the field, he goes to his oxen and he slaughters his oxen. He kills them. And he sacrifices them unto the Lord. He takes the meat and he feeds everybody around him and he follows Elijah. So the similar request was being made here. But the difference is, is Elijah, Elisha, was breaking all his formal ties of what was behind him. My former life as a farmer is now over. My new life of following the Lord is before me. But, but it, even, it even gets greater. It even gets greater because this is what Jesus says. Jesus says to the would-be follower, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, which is why Elijah killed his oxen, he's got nothing to go back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The guy might have had a biblical precedent to say goodbye and even an emotional precedent to say uh, goodbye to his family, but it wasn't Elijah who called him. It was Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that it was Jesus who called you to come and follow? 
Do you realize it was Jesus who has called you and even this morning is calling you to come and follow? And when it's the Son of God that we do not look back, we have no regret. We count the cost of everything that we may lose and we see that He is infinitely more worthy than anything else in this world that we can gain. It's Jesus who has called us. It is Jesus who is calling us. Not Elijah. Not Ben. Farther down the list, Ben. Not any other pastor or any other elder, but the Son of God. He is greater. And He is greater than our parents. He's greater than anything else in our life. And so we will not and should not look back. He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. The road is hard. The road is difficult. And we must give mercy when mercy is demanded. We give mercy when those who reject. We be tender-hearted and merciful, compassion and forgiving. And that part of the road is hard. I don't know if you've ever been there and had, had to face that kind of rejection, but that kind of rejection is very difficult, but we still give mercy because Jesus wants the best even for our enemies. Because we all were His enemies. So we can understand that. Has Jesus asked for too much of my commitment, though? It's just this too much. And for many, it was. Like I said, the crowds get smaller and smaller and smaller. Why? Because the demands of following Christ are hard. Is it too much? Is he asking you just to be a loser in discipleship? Looking ahead in Luke 18, we're almost done. Looking ahead in Luke 18, there was a conversation that Jesus had with a rich young ruler. You guys remember that conversation? And after the discussion of the, with, with that man, and he walks away, he's like, I ain't, I, ain't, I ain't giving up that. That's too much for me. Literally, too much. He has a conversation with his disciples, and Peter says in verse 28, it's up on the screen, he says, and Peter said, see, we have left our homes, and we have followed you. And I don't think he's being too boastful there. I think he's literally saying, Jesus, it's cost us. And, and Jesus knows that. Look what Jesus says in verse 29. Brothers and sisters, if you think that the cost of following Jesus is too great, please hear verse 29. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of God's kingdom who will not receive many more, many times more in this time in the age to come of eternal life. Do you hear and do you see what Jesus' promise is here? It says this. It says, you will never give up more than what Jesus will give you in return. But you must be willing to give up everything. All those things that we hold oh so dear. Family, safety, comforts, security. Jesus is not talking about us just giving up our sin here, is he? children are not sin. Our parents are not sin. These good gifts that we seemingly have are not sin. But our idolatrous love toward them is. These are the things that we are to give up. These are the things that we are to count as loss for the sake of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. 
We give up of ourselves, even these wonderful things that we have. And he will give us in return up many, up to many more times now in joy and blessings. Now, in this life, and the age to come. But if we are not ready, if we're not ready to count this cost and give these things up, then verse 30 to 62 is very true. We are not fit for the kingdom of God. And you are not fit for the kingdom of God. Because he has given himself. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have been united with him. You have been brought into his family, into his life, into his reward, into, into his name, a name that is above all names. And in this unite, with united, uh, that, being united with Christ, unity with Christ, then that is the treasure that will sustain us when we are on this long road of rejection and losing. Salvation is the free gift that is received by faith, but it costs us everything. As a church, this is an ideal we need to recover. Yes, let us celebrate when we meet someone and we share the gospel with them and they want to follow Jesus and they say that, Jesus, I will follow you anywhere. And yeah, we can be excited, but let us also warn them, have you counted the costs? Have you counted the costs? But we assure them in Christ that the blessings that he will give us in return, the treasure that he has given to us now and later is far greater than anything that we will be giving up because the treasure is him. The treasure is him. Is Jesus your treasure? If he is your treasure, then you will not mind giving up anything and everything else that is not your treasure. But if you find yourself having a hard time in giving up your other treasures, chances are he's not the the treasure that he ought to be to you. Chances are your heart is divided Your heart is divided, and that's the point of this passage. He wants his disciples whose hearts are are not divided. They're already, they've already decided that he is more important than anything else. And so they are ready to give up everything and fall in them. God is calling us to do that in this congregation this morning. And yes, brothers and sisters, there is a long way to go in counting the cost and taking up our cross daily and dying to ourselves and following him. That is a long road, but brothers and sisters, by God's grace, we get to do that together. We go together. This is not a shameless plug, but on Wednesday nights, we are starting a new book series our book in our series on discipleship. What it means to help others look more like Jesus. I invite you that if you can make it that, that Wednesday night, if you can make it on Wednesday nights, I implore you to be here. I think this is our greatest need as a church right now is to learn what it means to follow Christ 
and what it means is to help others follow Christ. Jesus is not asking us to give the minimum. Jesus has asked us to give everything. So we count the cost this morning, and I hope and pray that we will see him as worthy. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for our passage this morning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that has been stirring our hearts as we engage this text, as we've been singing together. And I pray, O oh God, that these things will work out in our hearts and we would count the cost. We would count the cost knowing that we will have to give up everything. Everything is on the line. And yet, in comparison, on the scale of what we receive, we get the Son of God that you have given to us so I pray, O oh Father, that you would help us to have a, a deep vision of that, what that means as we read our scriptures each, each day throughout the week, as we, we pray. God, give us, give us a vision in that from the scriptures and what that means. That calls greater delight in this deep and glorious treasure that all other treasures of this world would f- fade away in comparison Father, help us as we respond now as your people and your church to your glory and for our joy. Amen.